From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. I'm your host, Katie Schmidt, and joining us all the way from Washington on the West Coast is Austin Allred uh, of Royal Dairy. So welcome to the show, Austin. Thanks for having me. First things first, I'm going to have you start by introducing yourself a little bit more. What is your connection to agriculture and the dairy industry? Well, it's exciting to be on your show, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I dairy farm in central Washington. Um, I just started dairy farming about 10 years ago. Uh, I grew up on a potato farm, so I'm connected to agriculture my whole life, but pretty new to dairy. What has been the biggest learning curve for you going from potato farming to dairy farming? Uh, well, I can't pretend like I was this big potato farmer because I was like a rock picker. So it's not like I had to adjust my management style because I had no management on the potato farm. I was a rock picker. But dairy farming uh, has been really fun. Just the animal involvement. That's, that's really what made me want to come into the dairy farm side. And uh, I've loved that part of it. So that's been an adjustment. So what does air culture look like where you're at in central Washington? So I think what we're most popular for is this is apple country. I'm in the middle of apple country. So I think a big percentage of the, of the country's apples are here in central Washington, right in the area that I am in. We also have the highest yielding per acre potatoes in this part of the country. Uh, so Idaho puts it on their license plates, but we're just kind of, you know, the humble brother. And then there's, because of, because of the irrigation system, the irrigation district here that is, is really good, we have a, a, a really diverse agriculture system. So dairy is a, a fairly big part of where I'm at. And then a lot of different rotation crops off of the potatoes. And it's, it's a really, really uh, nice agriculture area. Tell us about Royal Dairy. What does the farm look like? Royal Dairy sits right in the middle of this potato farm that my dad owns. Um, so I work a lot with the family uh, every day. Not every day, fortunately, but often. We milk about 6,000 cows. Most of those cows are jerseys, but quite a few are crosses. It was a Holstein herd a few years ago. We raise all our heifers here. We have a lot of beef animals roaming around the ranch and uh, on different pastures and in a couple different feed yards uh, right, in the, right in the same vicinity ranch farm. So if you just started dairying about a decade ago, was the farm there initially or has your family built this site on a green site or did you acquire it or how did this come to be? Yeah, this, <clears throat> this farm was built by Smith Brothers in 2001 on the, in the Seattle area. They're a really uh, good milk daily delivery company that does a good job. And they built this farm to vertically integrate. And then uh, friend of mine bought it from them and I bought it from him. So the farm's been here for a long time in the middle, in the middle of, of my family's farm, um, but we just acquired it when the opportunity arose. You hosted a virtual farm tour at Expo this year and the opening scene of it is, I believe actually you water skiing or wakeboarding on the Manure Lagoon at the dairy. How are you able to do that? What is, tell us what's happening on the manure management side. Yeah, so coming into the dairy, you know, coming into dairy farming, I realized real quick that the biggest pain in the butt, the biggest liability was that lagoon. 
it was really the only part of my job that I didn't like from the beginning getting rid of the green water and the liability and the headache and everything that came with that. So we, I, was, I was motivated to try to find a solution to cleaning up our water and getting it to a point where it wasn't such a headache. So about six years ago, I started playing with a biofilter system. I put in a pilot project and then I put in a different phase and then a different phase. What a biofilter system is, is it sits right behind our primary mechanical separators. So the slope screens, we have a primary slope screen, and then we have a sand lane and a secondary slope screen. And then the liquid effluent beyond those slope screens goes to the biofilter. That biofilter, at this point, we have about seven plus acres of biofilters that are long, skinny swimming pools that have a foot and a half of rock and then a filled with wood chips that are inoculated with worms. You put the liquid effluent, the, the green water, essentially, that used to go to the lagoon, you now divert it to the worms. It settles through. We have this new biofiltration system. It eliminates 85 plus percent of the nitrogen, 80 plus percent of the phosphorus, and 70 plus percent of the potassium. So it eliminates the vast majority of the nutrients that are within that green water, and it gives me a cleaner green water that I then can water ski in. And a side note is it's really warm. So in the fall, like, you know, October, it's the, it's the best place to water ski slash wakeboard because the water is warm for whatever reason. So you're all welcome to come do it. Well, we'll take that as our invitation to come uh, water ski on the lagoons. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to get past that visual in my head of what I know lagoons to be here in the Midwest. So what are the, the, the products of going through this system? So obviously you're removing some of the, uh, the nutrients, but what are you able to do with whatever you're creating? So now just sticking on the water part, we have a lagoon that's full of really irrigation type water. So historically, before the biofilter system, I, have a, I had in an in a annual basis, I had to get rid of about 50 million gallons of water. To do this agronomically, I had to spread it on 4,000 plus acres, different acres every year, a rotation, to do that right. So now I have an irrigation type water. I plugged into about 800 acres of irrigation pivots, and I turn those on, and I irrigate all summer with that water without worrying about the agronomic effects of polluting, if, I, if you will, if you add too much nutrients from the, from the green water manure. So that's one. That's, that's, that was the solution that we were looking to, to solve or the problem we were looking to solve. And, and that's, the, that's one. Part two is the worm casting. So the nutrients that are, that are removed from this green water are now captured in, the, in these wood chips, in that media that's really filtering. And then the worms that are inoculated in those wood chips are eating those nutrients along with those wood chips. And they're putting it through their digestive system, which I often say a worm's digestive system is second only to a cow's. Because what it does is amazing. It, it, I don't understand it, and I won't even try. But if, it, if, if a worm eats it and poops it out, it's done something with it to make it plant ready. That's what worm castings are. So the worms upcycle those nutrients in, that, in those wood chips into something more powerful for the soil. And then we harvest that on an annual basis and we provide it to the soil, which then continues to help a healthy soil system to help this whole regenerative ag work. So 
two things I want to touch on that out of this. But first, what does the water situation look like where you're at? Are there limitations on how much water you're allowed to use? Or are you dealing with water cleanliness issues or or any types of those battles that we see kind of play out across the country? Yeah. So as I mentioned, in this specific part, I have another dairy that's not like this, but in this specific in the in the Columbia Basin where Royal Dairy is located, we have a very favorable irrigation system. So we don't have a water shortage today or in the last couple decades. However, we are very much regulated, like everyone across the country, by our application of green water. And we have to do it agronomically, not just because that's the responsible thing to do, because that is the law. And our laws in Washington State are mostly focused on nitrogen. So very much the focus is going to be how much nitrogen are you providing to your fields? And, and, and as everyone listening to your podcast likely knows, is that's, that's hard to do when you're working with green water, which is a very fluid, you know, nutrient analysis all the time and different. So it's kind of a crapshoot. And so for us, that's been the, the greatest So, you know, the greatest part of this solution is having clean water and not that agronomical uh, piece of applying or over applying nitrogen is a lot less headache for us to deal with. If that made any sense, I'll be surprised. I was following along. So I think I think it did. So the other thing you mentioned is the regenerative agriculture. How do you define that term? Because I think it's an evolving term in our industry? There's a lot of different definitions of regenerative agriculture. And the one that I feel has connected with the most people in my interactions has been the definition of there's a lot of, there's an excess of carbon in the air. There's a shortage of carbon in the soil. Regenerative agriculture is the natural way to make that inverse happen. There's a lot of pillars to regenerative agriculture, which build that definition and, and allow that inverse to happen. Primarily, and what I think why dairy farmers have a competitive advantage, if you will, to regenerative agriculture is because a ruminant is critical to, is a major pillar to regenerative ag. And then you have reduced tillage, you have effective cover crops, you have good water usage. I mentioned the ruminant and the, and the manure application that you might be playing with. And different rotations and, and the, the building different biologies in your soil. So those are those that to me, that's a long definition, but that is regenerative agriculture. Which makes sense. When I think regenerative agriculture, what comes to mind for me is cover crops, no-till or strip tilling, but a lot of it is land-based. How does the ruminant play into that cycle or what advantage, or can you expand on that advantage that dairy farms have because of that? Yeah. How much time do we have? As much time as you need. Let's let's go. I'm just teasing. No, I'm not that smart. I can't talk for that long. But the ruminant, the ruminant is the critical piece to all of this. I really believe that the ruminant is magical. It's powerful. It's a superhero in this piece of regenerative agriculture. What their four-part stomach does, I'll start, I'll start with just talking about rotation crops. My family, as I mentioned, is potato farmers. That's the majority of, that's where I buy the majority of my crops. So potatoes can only be planted in the ground every five or six years if you want to take care of your soil and if you want a good potato crop. So in the meantime, you got these rotation crops. 
at least for my family, because the potato would be their cash crop, if you will. So the triticale, the grasses, the alfalfa, the corn, and there's a few other wheat and, and crops that are really similar to those. Those are the crops that are actually building your soil. Those are the crops that are supporting your soil. So if you look at it from a ruminant versus human consumed crops, it is, to me, there's a correlation between the crops that the ruminant eat are the crops that support your soils. The crops that the humans eat are the crops that generally deplete your soils if you don't utilize them correctly. So it's all part of rotation. It's all part of the biology, the, the diverse biology you need in your soils. But at the end of the day, you have to have those crops that the ruminants are going to upcycle into proteins that we can digest in order to keep your soils productive. Now, that doesn't even, that doesn't even touch on what your, what your ruminants are doing as a byproduct, right? They're producing, they're upcycling these crops into proteins. And then they're giving you microbial-rich byproducts of the portion of that crop they weren't able to convert to a protein. They're spitting it back out full of microbials so it then can go back under your soils if you utilize it correctly and you don't screw it all up in the system. You put it back on your soils and you're, again, the ruminant is supporting your soils in, in that way. Not to mention now that we have worms, we have worm castings and worm poop to do, you know, to, to play a similar role to supporting our soils. And then to go back to where we started, that is where the carbon needs to be. We need to pull the carbon out of the air. And that, that process is what supports that regenerative agriculture, that system of pulling carbon out of the air and sequestering it in the soil and then just and then banking it there eventually. How can farmers capitalize on this superpower that their cows have? How can they find ways to partner with crop farmers or, or human food producing farmers to, to benefit each other? What ways can they go about doing that? I mean, the, beauty, the beautiful part of it is, is they are in a lot, a lot of ways. We're not getting credit for it, but, but dairy farmers are. There is systems that need to be tweaked and improved uh, in order to do it more effectively. By all means, we need to be honest about that part, right? We can't sit here and pretend like we all got it figured out, including me. But there is no good reason unless you frankly don't have feed close by, but there's no good reason to buy feed from far away. That isn't, that isn't the way to support the whole system. So it just comes down to local feeds, good rotations, keeping the soil at the top of the priority list, keeping the health of the soil at the top of the priority list, and really trying to figure out what the balance is and working the ruminants into that balance to make it all work correctly. One of the things that you mentioned in your farm tour was carbon credits. So I feel like I also want to talk a little bit about this. How are you selling carbon credits? Are you involved in that market or what does that look like for the farm? Yes, we are. So what a carbon credit is, is it's essentially a way to pay for a project that can show improvement on your carbon footprint. So right now, this system needs to be tweaked. It needs to be improved because like we, we mentioned in the last question with how can farmers take advantage of the ruminant, we have been and there are ways to do it better. But right now with carbon credits, it's hard to convert those ways to do it better, especially when it comes to soil health and soil building. 
to make, to get a carbon credit out of that. So that's a preface to, to now I'm going to get into what we've done for carbon credits, because I think it's an important understanding to know what carbon credits are and how you get to them. So this biofilter project uh, eliminated, and this is all about a year and a half long process to figure out these numbers, but I'm going to give it to you in a, in a summarized version. But because we started cleaning our water through the biofilter, our green water, and because our lagoon went from a green water, shit water lagoon to a more irrigation type water lagoon, we were able to figure that there was 40, around 40,000 CO2 ton equivalents of greenhouse gases that were eliminated in that process. So because we were able to dial that number down, we were able to convert those to carbon credits. So the improvement that that project gave us is now what we're able to convert into carbon credits. And so we do, we have those carbon credits and we sell those within our supply chain to companies who buy our milk. So we're selling them to Nestle. So Nestle is, is excited to be able to partner up with their supply chain to buy these carbon credits, to use that against their overall footprint when they market their milk. So I think a lot of time carbon credits are this like mystical thing. Is there a value associated with a carbon credit or who, who I guess, yeah, let's start there. Is there a value associated with a carbon credit or how do you define that specific carbon credit? Yep, there is a value. It's a very new world. And so I don't know even know how to compare it, but pretend like we, we just figured out corn and we were trying to value corn. And that's where we're at. So the values are all over the board. But I think <laughs> a safe range is 10 to $60 per credit, <laughs> which is a huge range. But it's just, it is what it is. I mean, it depends on the system. If they're in their supply chain, if they can take advantage of that portion of it, if they're out of your supply chain. I mean, supply and demand is, getting, is playing a huge factor into the value of the carbon credits because Frankly, there's few ways to reduce carbon as effectively as farmers can, especially on our manure management. So supply and demand just continues to build that value in a carbon credit. Who else is buying carbon credits besides people within your specific supply chain? So I'm going to step away from your farm specifically and just in general. Let's name the S&P 500 and I'll bet 90% of them. I mean, you got Walmart. We're working with Walmart on a couple different projects to try to work a way into their carbon goals, um, carbon reduction goals, I should say. Microsoft, Amazon. I think Google claims they're already there, but what does Google really produce? So, of course, they're there. So, all of them, all of them are trying to buy carbon credits. Delta, Conoco, all these companies. How do farmers then? sell their carbon credits or capture the value of those or, or market them? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is a hard part. I'm happy to connect farmers. That is something I am passionate about is connecting the farmer because I think we have to be sure not to sell ourselves short. You know, we play in the commodity markets and we see that we're one of the few industries that sells wholesale and buys retail. And so I don't want us to, I don't think it would be wise for us to do this with our carbon and our carbon reduction goals. So uh, I would start with your supply chain. So Nestle's in our supply chain. 
other companies in your supply chain, odds are they're going to be very, very interested in carbon credits, especially if they're within your supply chain. So that would be my advice as to where to start is just sit down and figure out who's buying your milk from DFA and find those people and then work your way down. Or Dairy Gold. We're Dairy Gold. So who's buying the milk from Dairy Gold? So that's how I started. But DFA is a big co-op. So I figured I'd mention that one. <laughs> they would be a good one for the national audience. There Absolutely. Yeah. So where do we go next or where do we go from here in the realm of regenerative agriculture? How do we as an industry become better at this? We understand so little about soils. It's amazing. And it's not anyone's fault. I don't want to pretend like it is. Coming out of World War II, the smart people, the smart scientists in the world, both Axis and Allies, sat down in a room and said, how do we never have another world war? And on the top of that list was hunger, food. So we figured out a really damn good productive way to make food. And it, and it was nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, which are always going to be a part of the equation. But I think in our soils, we, one, don't understand and don't give enough credit to all the rest of the pieces, the microbiology, if you will. If you look at the NPNK as the macro portion, Look at the micro portion and how that unlocks our soils to uh, utilize the macro portion better. And I think that's where we can really dive in and where we're going to start to understand. Because all, da all dairy farmers know this, right? We all know that manure works. We just don't know why exactly, except we know it's NPNK and everything. I mean, I don't want to pretend like we don't know. But at the same time, I think as we continue to learn more and more and more about our soils, we're going to continue to understand the huge benefit that the my, microbial rich byproduct that a ruminant gives us in the process of making awesome proteins for us is the answer to becoming more and more and more regenerative. And then we start throwing pieces of the, the worm casting and, and the worms into that equation. And we're going to realize that what we have, and we, a lot of us already realize that we've been using on our own farms forever, but what we have is really the key to carbon soil sequestration and the ruminant is going to just become this, you know, better understood superhero of creating a balanced agriculture system that can feed more than we currently can, that is more productive than it currently is. Where are you going for more information to, to learn about the soil microbials and how to better develop your soil health? Walmart. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a silly answer, but it's true. I'm trying to get Walmart to help us pay, pay WSU and other schools close to us to dive into this a little bit more. So I'm trying to team up with people who can really help us make it happen because if you go out and try to find like these very specific soil scientists in this, in this realm, it's very difficult. We have a shortage. How can others help in that uh, mission that you have? Tell Walmart to team up with us. <laughs> Tell the cashier next time we go to Walmart, hey, you should team up with Royal Family Farming. There we go. Okay, good. People have their their mission for uh, this episode is to go talk to their Walmart cashiers. There it is. Yep. Is there anything else that we haven't really covered on on this topic that you feel, Austin, like we need to to make sure we cover? We do have a carbon. I mean, we do have a footprint. 
our footprint is in three areas. It's in manure management, it's in enteric emissions, and it's in management in general, feed management, feeding our animals, just driving the, the trucks around to get the job done. So we have three areas of emissions. So that's true. But I think that the manure management portion is the lowest hanging fruit, and it probably is the biggest emitter off of our farms. So I think manure management is somewhere where we can really get a handle in the next few couple of years to, to turn that issue into a really big solution. The enteric thing, you know, cows burp, these incredible animals that are incredibly productive are going to burp. They're going to have some sort of emissions. But there is some things we're learning on the nutrition of these animals to understand that there's ways to reduce their enteric emissions. That one's going to be exciting. It's above my pay grade. But nonetheless, it's coming. Um, the management portion, you know, down the road, I think, again, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to be less dependent on fossil fuels, and that's going to help that. So I guess the reason I bring this up is because the manure management thing, I think, is something that we can all do a better job on. And it's something that will really solve, for us included, a big piece to trying to be more regenerative and to trying to balance our soils, our ruminants, and a productive food system a little bit better. So I'm going to ask a follow-up question to that, because when we think manure management, there's so many different styles of that on different farms, depending on how they're set up. So is there an optimal way to go about your manure system, whether it's sand, recycled solids, mattresses, straw bedding, recycled newspapers, you know, all the different options that people have to really create the system that works for them? Is there one that works best for this? You know, that's really one of the reasons I love regenerative agriculture and the definition and the broad definition of it is because it really is specific to your area. So you got byproducts, you have, you have other pieces that you're utilizing on your farm that make it a little more circular and a little more productive um, and efficient, then that's, that's the best system. So regenerative agriculture, I think on purpose by definition is broad to your area because it is kind of this own it's got to become its own ecosystem and the ruminants allow for that ecosystem to work we have for example we have put in the water beds the dual chamber chamber water beds because we were compost bedding and we wanted to use that compost on our farm so that transitioned us to to using the water beds and that will pay itself off really quickly and we've been really excited about the uh the cow management piece of the waterbeds. They've been very good for cow comfort. So I think it's hard to, to answer a very broad question as to what's the best for everyone. But I think there is pieces in all our farm that we can include to, to help this ecosystem work. This, this kind of this small ecosystem revolving around the ruminant work better. How do we as individuals learn what works within our system? Again, is there, you know, resources out there that we can leverage to, to figure out or to evaluate our farms? I mean, there is, there's a lot of resources. You know, I've, I've worked a lot with, with the universities, uh, our, our land grant, our, our WSU and some of the universities. We have a lot of different grants in the, in the process right now. Uh, our agronomist, uh, our nutritionist, I think just the same people we're working with um, are the people who we can continue to have these conversations with to try to figure out 
how do we support our soils and our ruminants and keep this system working together a little better. Well, that works for me. I have to say thank you so much, Austin, for really just kind of introducing all of us to this regenerative agricultural world. This is the first time we've covered it on The Dairy Show. So thank you for sharing your insight and your experience in that. And uh, of course, for sharing your time with listeners. Oh, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 